This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Robert Gorham Davis's story, Then We'll Set It Right, which was published in The New Yorker in 1943. From the road, where Lawrence was racing to catch up with two members of his company, came the sounds of shooting produced with tireless mechanical precision by the mouths of small boys. Mr. Purvis put down his spoon and listened. Anti-aircraft and Thompson's, he said. The story was chosen by Lydia Davis, who is the author of seven books of short fiction, including Break It Down, Varieties of Disturbance, and last year's Can't and Won't. Her story, Thyroid Diary, was published in The New Yorker in 2000. So welcome, Lydia. Hello. So I have had people um, choose stories by friends and former teachers or mentors, even a cousin. This is the first time someone has chosen a story by a parent. Robert Gorham Davis was your father. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his career in fiction writing? It, his career in fiction writing was actually quite short, interestingly. I think he had ambitions to be a fiction writer when he was quite young, and I know he had lots of pages towards a novel, a very autobiographical novel. And then he started writing short stories, and I think he didn't have a lot of confidence and then would have bursts of activity and produce several stories at once. And he actually had three in The New Yorker, and one right in the same period, 42 and 43. And one of them, though not this one, was also selected for an O. Henry Prize volume. So he, he got nice recognition when he did publish a story. But then he tapered off from that and, and got more involved in teaching and criticism. And he was, he was in his 30s when he wrote these stories, right? Uh, yes, 43 he would have been... In his 30s, yeah. And he was already a professor of, of literature? And he was. He was already teaching at, I think, first Harvard and then Smith College. And do you know why he stopped writing? Well, that's a good question, and I really don't. I'm, I'm in the process of sorting my parents' letters, and I've found several with exuberant news of publication in The New Yorker on both their parts. <laughs> right. They Your were, mother, Hope Hale, also published stories here. That's right. She had four in The New Yorker. So... That's part of the reason I chose it. It's, it amuses me that both my parents were in The New Yorker, and then finally I was in The New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read their fiction when you were young? I think I read this particular one because one of the reasons I chose it was that I remembered it very well for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So it, it stuck with me. I thought it was very good. I I did read, but but not... Carefully and heavily, you know, I was unaware of, of the content of the rest of the stories. And what was it about this story that stayed with you? Well, as you'll see, the, the ending of it, the, the way the ending is handled, was very interesting to me. And also the fact that it was written during the Second World War and published during the Second World War. And it's, I would say, more or less an anti-war story. And do you think that your parents' writing had any influence or effect on your eventually becoming a writer as well? Oh, I'm sure the fact that they were writers, that they prized writing so highly, and so many of their friends were writers, all of this made a big difference to my attitude towards writing. Their actual style of writing is quite different. 
but that's to be expected. Right. So it didn't make you want to rebel by becoming a dentist or something. No, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Great. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Lydia Davis reading Then We'll Set It Right by Robert Gorham Davis. Then We'll Set It Right. A great many new families had come to Marbury since the war began. The little fireworks plant had been expanded with government help to 20 times its former size and was producing ammunition in great quantities. The incoming executives had taken all the vacant winter houses, beautiful old houses, many of them, and the summer places were filled with families of officers at Camp Peters, 15 miles away. Young Lawrence Purvis had been having a wonderful summer. He had never had so many playmates with such interesting backgrounds. Marbury was his second home. His father, who had grown up and had his first law practice here, still made it his legal residence, although the family spent most of their year in the city. This Saturday, a hot, still August day, the Purvises had lunched late so that Mr. Purvis, who had come down from town, could be with them. Lawrence had eaten very fast, bending low over his plate and putting in one mouthful before the preceding one had been swallowed. He said he did not want dessert. "'What's the matter with you, Lawrence?' his mother asked. "'You've bolted your food so, and now no dessert.' Lawrence lifted his chin eagerly. His narrow face and close-cropped, knobby head were the same shade of light brown. Only his large, dark eyes gave contrast and focus to his face. It's the Powder House gang. We're expecting an attack. They've got an army, too. We've had sentinels posted all morning. He jammed his napkin into his ring and pushed his chair back from the table. Can I be excused now? He began backing toward the door, his eyes on his father's face. On the shoulders of his khaki shirt were stars cut from beer cans. His father was a large man with smooth, soft skin and a statesman-like jaw, slightly cleft in the middle. He looked at his son. Excused, he asked mildly. Yes, they're waiting for me. No doubt, but aren't you forgetting something, Mr. Purvis said. What, Lawrence asked in an alarmed and defensive voice. I think you know. The dishes, Lawrence said grudgingly, and came slowly back to the table. But just this once, it's our big day. You think your mother should do them then? No, but... And the garden this morning, how much time did you put in? But... Lawrence's voice trailed off, then he sat down in his chair, sprawling defiantly, watching every bite his parents took. Come, boy, said Mr. Purvis in his deep, rich voice. Is this the way your troops obey orders? No, sir, Lawrence answered, sitting up straight now. I wonder what sort of soldier you are. Mr. Purvis paused, looking thoughtfully at Lawrence. Lawrence returned the gaze, not letting himself hope, moving a finger up and down one seam of his pants. Because I'm more interested in the spirit in which it's done than in the work itself, I'm going to make a counterproposal. I could take over your dishwashing this once. He held up his hand as Lawrence moved eagerly. This is going to be equally hard. You don't want to just get out of something, do you? 
No, Dad. If things are too easy, you don't feel good about them, do you? Well, you may go now if you will come back promptly at 4.30 and work for one full hour and a half in the garden. Lawrence blinked and looked uneasily up at the clock. It was 25 minutes past two. Without any reminding, you're on your honor now. Remember. All right, Dad. With a little sigh, Lawrence grabbed a belt and cap pistol from the table and rushed out the door. Mr. Purvis smiled and turned to his wife. He's okay, he said cheerfully. We just have to deal with things as they come up, get them into the open, not let anything build up inside. From the road, where Lawrence was racing to catch up with two members of his company, came the sounds of shooting produced with tireless mechanical precision by the mouths of small boys. Mr. Purvis put down his spoon and listened. Anti-aircraft and Thompson's, he said. In my day, we had nothing to guide us on the sounds. We actually went around shouting bang, bang, the way it was written in books. Very crude by present standards. In a way, it's terrible, though, his wife said. Laurie told me how to kill a man in the dark with a knife without making a sound. Mr. Purvis laughed and pretended to cringe away from her. You aren't going to try it, he asked. But really, Puss, it's not terrible at all. Death is a word to them. A theatrical fall to the ground. They have all that destructive energy that they can blow off by pretending to shoot each other. It gets it out of their system. The terms he uses, Mrs. Purvis laughed. And those books in his room, I can't understand a word of them. He really organizes those boys, Mr. Purvis said. Sixteen kids showing up every day to take his orders and like it. In my day, we just bickered. The sweet dessert, the warm air, and thoughts of the weekend merged tranquilly. He looked down at the table. Oh, God, he said, the dishes. Oh, I'll do them. You've had a hard week. Do you really mind, Puss, he asked, patting her arm. Lawrence's company was encamped in a rarely used sand pit which made a crater in the side of a high, wooded hill. Except for one opening, where the winding truck road ran onto the floor of the pit, it was enclosed by sand walls rising 40 to 50 feet. It was a perfect place for dugouts and foxholes, although not defensible against an enemy who had gained the rim above. This was protected, however, by machine gun and mortar emplacements. As Lawrence came along the truck road into the pit, a small boy stepped from behind a barricade and presented arms. Any news? Lawrence asked. We just sent out another scout. Chuck didn't find out anything, the small boy said. A larger boy with tin bars on his shoulders came up and saluted. Order the company to fall in, Captain, Lawrence said. We can't just stand around waiting. A group of four or five boys stood waiting across the floor of the pit. No more close-order drill, one of them shouted insubordinately. Lawrence frowned. Order the company to fall in, he repeated, ignoring the shout. As the group came toward him, he said, This is different. Wait and see. When the nine boys not on sentry or scout duty were lined up before Lawrence and had quieted down, he took a scrap of newspaper from his pocket and looked at it, frowning. This is what real training is, he said, and began to read. 
And this program is no strength through joy movement. It's a grim, tough business. Weaklings, morally and physically, can't take it. They're not wanted. At Fort Bragg, the emphasis is on developing aggressiveness. Their physical toughening takes place in the course of this program to, he stumbled over the word, to inculcate the killer instinct. There is none of the emphasis on the niceties of the game or on sportsmanship. In some of the contests, I witnessed a number of palpable fouls. We're interested only in teaching them to go out and win, explained. Lawrence broke off impatiently. Oh, never mind all that. I'll just tell you what the rest of it says. He took a deep breath and looked directly at his audience, which had grown restless during his reading. Why did we have so many casualties in Africa at first? Because the men hadn't learned to keep cover. They exposed themselves. And do you know how they cure that now? By using live bullets in training. This was what he had been working toward, and it got some show of interest from the shifting line of boys. And that's how we're going to train from now on. Lawrence looked around for a moment at the familiar geography of the pit. Then he faced the ranks. At the command, fall out, go back beyond that bush, and then at the command, advance, start crawling straight for where I am now. Remember, keep everything down, right flat to the ground. Dick, you get into that foxhole beside me with some round stones about this size. He leaned over and selected one from the ground. And keep throwing them just 30 inches above the ground. It has to be 30 inches. He waited until they were in their positions and then gave the commands. Now then, get down flat and crawl. Make it fast. Keep your guns ready. Lawrence looked on with satisfaction as the line of grunting boys, wooden guns in their right hands, crept toward the foxhole across the sand and through the crabgrass, while the boy in the foxhole, about twenty feet from them, threw stones happily. But it didn't work out well. The first stone was too high. The second, a piece of slate, curved down and hit the first crawler on the hand. He jumped up angrily. You threw that at me on purpose, Dick. No, I didn't, Dick said. Well, you were looking right at me when you threw. Back to line, all of you, and keep on, Lawrence shouted. He turned to the thrower. Don't think about them. Just keep throwing level 30 inches above the ground. They began to crawl again, but a stone which just missed a boy's face brought another angry protest. Hey, that was no 30 inches. Well, what is 30 inches, Dick yelled. Let's see you try it. All right, I will. Stop. As you were, Lawrence called. This has got to be right. He stopped a moment to consider. Then he shook his head. A gun would be the only thing that would be right. We'd have to have a real gun. Nuts. You aren't shooting any old bullets at me, one boy said, shaking his head excitedly. The others were held by the idea testing themselves in their minds. We could fix it so it would be safe, Lawrence said. You could if you had a gun. We can get one, Lawrence said impressively. He grinned at Ed Peterson for confirmation. Hey, Ed? Ed frowned. What, he asked, as if he did not understand. 
He was a chunky boy with deep-set eyes and a scar showing through his cropped brown hair. You know, Lawrence said impatiently, the thirty-two. You said you could have it any time you wanted. Well, not over here, I can't. Why not? If you can have it any time you want it, why can't you have it when we need it here? Well, that isn't the same, Ed said uneasily. The others were eager. Come on, Ed. Does he let you shoot it? Could I shoot it, Ed? No, no one else can shoot it but me. All right, you'll be the only one to shoot it, Lawrence said. But hurry up. I'd have to ask my father. You said you didn't have to ask him. Anyway, your tool shed's out of sight of the house. Ed looked around for support, but none was forthcoming. The wooden guns the boys were playing with had become absurd. But I have to go home early, Ed said. We're going on a picnic out on the point. I have to be home early, too. That's why we've got to hurry, Lawrence glanced over at the captain's wristwatch. Look, Ed, we've got to have this right, and you're spoiling everything. He paused and looked firmly at Ed. I wonder what kind of soldier you are, he said slowly. He waited in silence until Ed had to give in. I hadn't ought to, but I suppose this once, Ed said reluctantly and began trudging off. Be back in ten minutes and bring plenty of shells, Lawrence said, glancing impatiently at the watch again. The boys were excited now and all began talking at once with nervous boastfulness. When Ed came back with the rifle, he was still uneasy. My father came out to go to the garden, he said, and I dropped it in the high grass. He didn't see it, but I nearly got caught. He blew out his breath and shook his head. Okay, Lawrence murmured, absorbed in what he was doing. By much winding of string and wire, he was fastening the barrel to the top of a box placed at the edge of the foxhole. It was very unsteady, but they piled sand and rocks on it until it was good and firm. You won't be able to see to shoot now, Ed said. You're not supposed to. That would spoil it. Lawrence was still making adjustments. He finally got the gun fixed and placed a large cardboard carton about 30 feet away. When Ed dropped into the foxhole and tried the gun... With three shots, the bullets plopped through the cardboard at just about the right distance from the ground. There, Lawrence said with satisfaction. The group quieted as the shots sounded flat and unechoing within the enclosure of the sand pit. Then their excitement burst out again. Boy, you don't get me in front of that gun. I'd dig right through the ground like an old mole. I'll show you, Lawrence said. Shoot twice when I call out, he told Ed, who was out of sight behind the gun. The others crawling under the barrage of rocks had made a track through the sand. Lawrence followed it, hitching forward on his elbows. As he approached the gun, he called out to Ed and then put his face almost into the sand and kept on advancing. The two shots went well above his head and barely enlarged the hole in the carton. Lawrence jumped up. See, he said, but we can't use so many shots for each one. We can keep in single file and let him fire sort of unevenly so we won't know when it's going off. That will teach us to keep down. 
He considered the faces of the boys. Anyone afraid, he asked. Those who want to get in line, come forward. I want to, too, Ed called from the hole. All right, Neil, you know how to shoot it, don't you? Just every once in a while, but wait till we're ready. The first time the file of boys wriggled forward, they were obviously fearful and hesitant, flinching at the sound of the gun and struggling with the desire to raise their heads and see where the bullet struck. But once safely past the line of fire, they leaped up in ecstatic joy and ran around the gun pit to take their places again. Lawrence glanced up and saw that the sentries stationed on the rim above were watching the maneuvers in the pit. Corporal Higgins, he said, turning to the boy at the head of the file, go up and remind the sentries that we're expecting an attack. They've got to watch those woods for men coming up the hill. Tell them to turn around and forget we're down here. After the file of boys had gone toward the foxhole twice, Ed halted abruptly and looked at his watch. I have to have the gun now, he said. I have to go home. Oh, Ed, they said. Once more. Come on, Ed. It only takes a minute. All right, he said. Once more, but fast. It was when the file of boys had started forward toward the gun for the third time and some 25 shots had been fired, that the expected attack from the Powderhouse Point Army came. One of the sentinels saw them in the woods at the foot of the hill and shouted a warning, raising his gun horizontally above his head. Ed, who was first in file and a squad leader, recognized the signal and excitedly started to scramble to his feet. Neil, who was down in the pit, could not see the sentinel. He fired the gun again. Ed collapsed on the ground. Stop, Neil, stop, Lawrence shouted. He waited a moment, then got to his knees. There were heavy steps behind him as a man in overalls hurried up. Who's shooting that gun around here, he bellowed. It was Joe Tobin, the contractor who owned the pit. You know what I've told you? He looked past Lawrence and saw Ed lying face down on the ground. Blood was draining into the grass around his head. For the love of God in heaven, Tobin cried out and went over to kneel by Ed. Lawrence leaned down beside him. Tobin lifted the boy by the shoulders and looked at his head. There was not much blood at the wound. It came mostly from his mouth, and Tobin could see where the bullet had entered the head and where it had come out. Up on the rim, the sentinels were engaging the enemy. The powderhouse point boys were calling, You're dead. I got you. The outnumbered sentinels, retreating, looked down to see why help was not coming. When they noticed the circle around Ed and realized someone was hurt, they began running and sliding down the sides of the pit, their attackers with them. He isn't dead, is he, Lawrence asked Tobin in a protesting voice. Of course he's dead, Tobin shouted angrily. He looked at the boys who had come down from above. Go on, get out of here, he yelled. What's the matter with you? Then he groaned and sat down heavily on a rock staring at Ed and twisting his old felt hat in his hands. There was a hubbub of questions from the boys who had just come down. Ed got shot, someone said. He's dead. They fell silent. Shouldn't we do something, Lawrence said desperately. 
Of course, of course. We're not going to leave him here. Tobin got up, stopped, and went back to the rock. I've got to stay here, he said, brushing distractedly at a green fly about his head. Go on, get somebody, quick. Get an ambulance. Get his father. I'll stay here. Some of the boys still stood looking on silently at a little distance, but the rest turned and started off down the rutted road. Tobin called them back in sudden fright. You kids can't go telling the Petersons, he looked at Lawrence. You live next door. Your father home? Lawrence nodded. You tell him then, Tobin said, and let him break the news. Lawrence whirled and ran. The other boys broke up into small, straggling groups, walking slowly and talking in soft, excited voices. Mr. Purvis was sitting on his screened porch, alternately reading time and looking at his garden. Lawrence could clear out some of the stuff that was past yielding and pick corn and beans for supper. He saw Lawrence coming, running hard. The warrior returneth, he called to his wife, only ten minutes late. If you approach him right, he really tries. Lawrence leaped over the low picket fence and came up to the porch. His father said, I think I'll join you on the job. I was relieved of the dishes by the beneficence of your mother. Lawrence came in with his face turned away, panting. From the next house down the road, they could hear a man's voice calling. Lawrence did not speak. Mr. Purvis frowned. Look, he said, remember what... But Lawrence pushed past him toward the hall. His father grabbed him angrily and swung him around. I said, I expected. Then he saw that Lawrence was sobbing. Mr. Purvis looked down at his son in surprise. Come, boy, he said softly. I think we can forget those ten minutes. He tried to distract him as one would a much younger child. Listen to Mr. Peterson calling Ed, he said. He smiled. He sounds like an old cow. The sobs broke out into sound. Mrs. Purvis rushed from the kitchen, but Mr. Purvis held up his hand to silence her. Through a great many domestic crises, he had learned to take a detached and scientific attitude. It was easier on the nerves and accomplished more. Not the attitude of the judge, for Mr. Purvis was well aware of the remedial weaknesses of the law. The attitude of the doctor, the healer, rather, finding first what was wrong and then compounding the proper remedy. Is it something else, then, he asked in a firm, suggestive, soothing voice. Tell us about it. You know we'll understand. We deal with these things together, you know. Just tell us. The sobs became still more violent, the boy's body shuddering in a kind of sickness against the man's. Nothing's ever so bad once you've told it, Mr. Purvis said to him, shaking his head a little as he talked. He glanced up at Mrs. Purvis, smiling gently in anticipation of early climax and release. They waited. Through the screen, they could see Mr. Peterson set a picnic hamper down on his curbstone and, still calling, start up the road. He had huge freckled arms and a very small cloth cap set squarely on his head. 
He made a rather absurd figure. Mr. Purvis looked down once more at his son. Just get it outside so as we can look at it, Laurie, he said confidently, and then we'll set it right. That was Lydia Davis reading Robert Coram Davis's story, Then We'll Set It Right, which was published in the magazine in 1943. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Lydia, following Chekhov's rule, as soon as a real gun is mentioned in the story, we know it's going to go off at some point. And maybe we can guess that it's, if anyone is injured, it's going to be the boy who was the most reluctant to go and get it. Do you think that sense of inevitability or, or foresight is is helpful to the storytelling or harmful? I think it's probably helpful because I, I thought about that a little bit as I reread the story, as I do with other stories in which you would think the outcome is is inevitable and too predictable, but actually it isn't. You know, it this could have gone any one of number of ways. The sheriff could have descended and found them using a real gun, or the fathers could have arrived, or there could have been a close, a near miss, or um, just an injury. So I don't think an actual death, an actual death is pretty brutal, a death of a child. So I think in, in one sense, that's not predictable. So the introduction of the gun is a good plot move. Do you think it was the right choice to have to have Ed be shot? Well, it's hard to say because there's so many possible ways it could have gone, but but it wasn't a bad choice. I mean, I think it was, a, you know, I've never talked to him about the story or his intentions, if he remembered them. Maybe he wanted to send a very, very strong message against war, that war isn't a game. So maybe this was the best way to do it. Yeah, well, I was I was going to say, since you mentioned earlier that this was written at a time when the U.S. was deeply embroiled in World War II in 1943. Do you think that we're meant to read it as in some way allegorical or a cautionary tale? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of inescapable being published at that time. If it had been published when we weren't at war or war wasn't going on, then there might be more interpretations. But I think it's pretty brutally allegorical. Does the story... Does it feel dated to that time to you, or does it feel as relevant now as as it would have been then? That's an interesting one to think about, because I certainly noticed that certain little linguistic things felt a little dated, which is interesting because we're now, I guess, about 70 years later. When the boy Ed says, 
I hadn't ought to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that 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 isn't something a boy would say now. A lot of the rest of the language was surprisingly contemporary. Being excused from the table, things like the little habits that that wasn't outrageously dated either. So no, actually, yeah. uh, it yeah. doesn't feel very dated to me. Well, in some ways, this is a situation we're reading about in the newspaper every day. You know, a child has access to a gun and someone gets hurt or killed. That's right. And and even children being trained by adults to be an effective army. Mm-hmm. That goes on, all, although probably not in the U.S. Right. Well, so one of the most sort of salient things for me in the story is is actually the father, Mr. Purvis's view of Lawrence and and how that maybe affects what he does. I mean, I'm thinking of his sort of benignly saying that line that Lawrence then repeats to Ed, this, I, I wonder what kind of soldier you are, and sort of implying that he needs to live up to a certain standard. Why do you think that line is repeated? I think it's it's very effective the way it's repeated, partly because that's what children do. They pick up things that, that impress them, and they immediately like to use them. And I think he was impressed by that moment, which sort of called him, summoned him to to be more manly, more soldierly. And he immediately used it very effectively on poor Ed. It's natural behavior on the part of a child. It feels natural. But it's also... I guess it's pretty pivotal in this in the story because it brings up this point of manliness or soldierliness uh, leading to something not very good, mm-hmm. um, posing as as a good high moral standard, but actually being turned to something much more negative. Right. If we're supposed to think, I think, of Mr. Purvis as benign and fatherly. But there's a moment where, you know, the mother is freaked out because Lawrence is reading about or learning about how to, you know, kill a man silently in the dark and so on. And the father says, oh, it's just, you know, it's boys' play and so on and and shrugs it off. And, of course, what turns out to happen is not boys' play. So one wonders if his benign view of things is just completely misguided or... Yeah, he seems a little bit standoffish or a little bit remoter than he needs to be as a father uh, or a little bit oblivious, a little bit caught up in his own theories of, of, of fatherhood. Development. Yeah, yeah. And, and of getting things out in the open and then you can right. handle right. them. Busy with his theories and not, not quite present. Not quite noticing the reality, yeah. And we get the story in the beginning from, from the father's point of view and then from Lawrence's, of course, and then at the end from the father again. Why do you think that well, I, your father chose those sort of switches of perspective? I thought that the ending was was handled very well in the sense that we've been very caught up in the boy's point of view and what's going on in the sandpit. And then we switch rather abruptly to the, the father's point of view, and he's thinking about what they'll do in the garden, which is quite natural. And there's Mr. Peterson, Ed's father. His preoccupation is getting to the picnic on time. And I think this was all, when I when I think of plotting a story, I think this was set up quite well, that both boys had to be home early for a reason. We know what the reasons are. 
and it's um, planted carefully that, that they're 10 minutes late. So it's natural for Ed's father to be calling for him and looking for him. So that's all uh, set up well. So we're, we're thinking of the father's point of view here with the garden and the boy's discipline. And it's this sort of reader connivance thing. We know what's happened. We know the whole story. The father doesn't. So whereas the father was authoritative in the beginning, he's less authoritative now from our point of view because he doesn't know what's happened. And what the, the stroke that I thought was brilliant that always stayed with me was the father gently trying to distract the boy by making fun of mm-hmm. Ed's father, which is natural again. It, it didn't feel forced. And it sort of redoubles the pathos um, of, the, of the story. We're, we're making fun of Ed's father who doesn't yet know mm-hmm. the worst. So do you think in that moment we're, we're sympathizing with Mr. Purvis? Not with Mr. Purvis, really. I don't think he's a very sympathetic person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, the, the, seeing him at the end not being authoritative or in that position makes us read the beginning a little differently, too. Yeah, he yeah. just seems a little bit more of a blowhard, a little bit more pompous, a little bit more disconnected from things. Now, when your father wrote this, you weren't yet born. Was he a father yet? Yes, he was a father, and I think he was a stepfather to my older sister, who would have been, I think, 10 at this point, and he was a father to my older brother, who was only two, and I think his, actually, his story, his spate of story writing was probably moved by the the birth of my brother. I think he was very excited to be a father, and one of his stories, the, the one that got into the O. Henry Prize volume, was about a baby feeding a little baby and the father and the mother. So this may, in a sense, be a cautionary tale to himself, what not to let happen when your brother was older. Yeah, and he was he was a bit of a Mr. Purvis. He was a bit of a <laughs> theorist. He was very interested in everything. So he was also interested in how children develop and how children think. And, and so he was a little bit abstracted like that. You mentioned earlier that you chose the story, that the story stayed with you because of the ending. And, of course, there's that last line, which is also the title. Why do you think it's so effective? Well, it was really the ending to do with the shift in point of view and Mm -hmm. the the handling of, you know, there's no grand denouement of, you know, the father finds out and the father begins weeping or so on. It's a soft peddling of the end with the father kind of Ed's father making a slightly absurd figure walking off down the road. So it's a, an effective conclusion, but it's not a, a melodramatic one. Except for the, the complete pointlessness of Mr. Purvis saying, then we'll set it right, you know, when, when this is something that cannot be set right. That's right. That's right. I wondered at the reaction of the boys to the actual shooting. Uh, Lawrence, of course, bursts into tears when he gets home. But at the time of it, they're, they're in disbelief. He's not dead. Is he? Of course he's dead. But the boys seem more excited than anything else. Yeah, I think it it doesn't really sink in. It's a little bit on the surface for them. It's amazing and crazy. And maybe they will have nightmares later, but they are more excited than horrified. I don't think it's sunk in yet. And uh, I think for the adult who's there, it, it has immediately. Do you think that Lawrence's decision or that his pushing... Ed to get the gun and that his sort of calling all the other boys to 
manliness and and to face up to this thing. Do you think? Do you think it's somehow darker than just child's play? Are we supposed to think that he's really gone too far? That he's carried away with power? Or is this just a sort of boyish thing that anyone would do? I don't think it's really more sinister, but I, I think he's he's obviously a very bright kid. The books he's apparently reading and the article he finds and the reading it aloud and then his own uh, understanding of what's going on in Africa, for instance. He seems mm-hmm. He seems to be awfully... Right, and I think he just gets carried away by the by professionalism, the whole idea of professionalism, and the and the authority that the boys give him, which certainly does have larger ramifications nowadays for us. I think the excitement of military training and the excitement to kids who are kids are very competent, very young. If if we only would allow them to be, they'd be. <laughs> I think. Um, was it Adams, John Adams's son? I can't remember. One of them was a secretary to uh, the embassy in Russia or something at a very young age mm-hmm. because he could speak French and was needed as an interpreter. I mean, kids are capable of amazing things at young ages, which is scary. <laughs> <laughs> we try to sweep that under the rug and keep everyone coddled for a long Infantilize time. Infantilize them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wonder, you know, the tone of this story, it's, it's, it is a bit like a sort of adventure story for boys in some ways, the, the tone in which it's written. Of course, it was published in The New Yorker, but I wonder what you think the intended audience might have been. Do you think this was also written for four children? I don't really think so. No, I think this followed, I can't remember, it followed one story. It may have followed the two other stories that he had had in The New Yorker. So I imagine from the life in my parents' household that they were aiming towards adult magazines and they were always thrilled to to be accepted by The New Yorker. So it may, though, have been influenced by his own reading as a child. You know, he may have, uh, he was a great reader, of course, and maybe that reading stuck with him. And children's books, boys' adventures books, were written in a much more adult way mm-hmm. than they are now. Than and now, yeah. You pick up one and you can't believe that kids could have read that vocabulary in those sentence structures. Yeah. Do you feel regretful that he didn't keep going with his, with his writing? Oh, not particularly one way or another. You know, I think yeah. he was very, he, he would have been a, a perfectly good fiction writer, I think, but... But I think he was a, a very astute and, for a while, very important critic, literary critic, and definitely a very good teacher. So that's the question is whether, you know, he should have given that all up and, mm-hmm. and just... In fact, my childhood probably was happier with him being a <laughs> professor and critic because I can imagine the if the two of them with their temperaments had been right. locked in their rooms pounding away <laughs> at their typewriters, it wouldn't have been very happy. And, of course, your style was radically different from your parents' writing style. You didn't become a dentist, but, but you rebelled in a different way. Or yeah, although I think... strayed in a different way. Yeah, my, my first stories probably were modeled on just this sort of story, setting the scene and identifying the characters and uh, having a, a coherent plot and a con- coherent conclusion and mm-hmm. going on at a certain length. Um, you know, it was sort of training. I wrote that kind of story for a year or two, definitely, after college. So 
I put in my apprenticeship and then uh, and then began branching out. Did you ever go back to the pages of your father's novel and see if there was anything there? Oh, yeah. I'm very interested in doing something with it. You know, I, I can mine it for biographical material, if nothing else, because he grew up in a very interesting household as, as the only child, a much cosseted only child of mm-hmm. two parents and a couple of grandparents and various male nurses and female <laughs> nurses and maids. and right. So it was a, an odd household, and I find that whole, that whole story very interesting. So I would either uh, work on his novel for him, see what I could do with it, or more likely write out his life story based on that. Well, I can't wait to see it. Hmm? <laughs> I can't wait to see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lydia. You're welcome. Pleasure. Robert Gorham Davis was a literary critic, writer, and scholar, the author of studies on John Dos Passos and James Farrell, among others. He published several stories in The New Yorker in the 1940s. The Collected Stories of Lydia Davis was published in 2009, and her volume Can't and Won't came out last year. Davis has also translated Proust, Flaubert, and other French writers. She won the Man Booker International Prize in 2013. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.